You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the book of Revelation. But if you remember, last week we started a look at what is called the prophecy of the 70 weeks in the book of Daniel. And now I know if you haven't ever encountered that before, that was a lot of information and a lot of details. I don't apologize for it, but I know it was a lot. So it's going to be pretty much the same this week as we deal with the second part of that. Again, no apologies, but this is one of those things that you take what you take from it. You can listen to it again. You can go over, you can get your own Bible, you can study it more. But this prophecy is amazing. For me, it's probably one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. I will recap briefly what we did last week for context. So the book of Daniel, that was written in the 6th century BC. So we're going back to 500 years before the time of Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel was in captivity at this time. They were in Babylon. The Babylonian empire had taken them captive because they disobeyed the Lord and he let them go into captivity. And during this time, Daniel was given a prophecy and it's called the 70th week's prophecy. And I'll read all of the verses with you now so you can get a feel for it and then we'll go through it piece by piece. So it starts off like this. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will be will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So that's the prophecy. Now hopefully I can make that all make a bit of sense to you by the end of this. If you remember last week we dealt with the first three verses and it was just the last verse there on the screen that we didn't look at. But in summary, let's go through this a little bit. It states that a period of 70 weeks, and remember I talked about this as weeks of years, the the Israelites were used to dealing with weeks of years, so it's a period of 77. If you work it out, that's 490 years. So a period of 490 years is determined for six things to happen. And it's those things in the verse there, to make an end of sin, to make atonement, to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So 490 years, those things are going to be completed. And ultimately, if you look at those things, that'll bring us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All prophecy will be fulfilled, atonement's done, and all these different things. So that is the prophecy there. Now, we also noted that these 70 weeks, this 490 years, was split, and I won't go through it again, but I'll just briefly outline, into two periods. A period of 69 weeks, and then one week remaining at the end. So that's a period of 483 years, with one seven-year period, one week of years remaining to go. 
That's how the prophecy is split. And it's stated that from a specific decree, that's our starting point, that was issued that dealt with the rebuilding of the city in Jerusalem, there shall be 69 weeks. So that first 69 weeks. So we have a start date. I'll briefly recap. We know the start date because we know quite a lot about the history of this time. This was a decree given by King Artaxerxes on March the 5th in the year 444 BC. He was the king of the Persian Empire who had taken over from Babylon and he had, Daniel was now being in captivity with the Persians, but he was the king there. And I did share with you very, very briefly, I'll share with you again, he gave this decree to a man named Nehemiah who was his cupbearer. We know in the Bible, if you don't know, there is a book called Nehemiah. It is from this man. He was one of the Old Testament prophets. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And I mentioned if you go to the British Museum today, we actually have some of the cups that King Artaxerxes used. And it says around the edge there, there's an inscription that says this is the cup and drinking vessels of King Artaxerxes. So it's very probable that Nehemiah would have held these cups and been responsible for giving them to the king. I throw that in again because I just think that's so cool that we have that. But it was to Nehemiah that this prophecy, this decree rather, was given. Everyone with me so far? This is just summary, I'm warning you. This is just the summary of last week's. That's our starting point, March the 5th, 444 BC. So let me follow through what the prophecy says. It probably will help if you have it open on your laps as we go through this. It's a very precise prophecy. It's a mathematical prophecy. It says that there will be a period of 69 weeks, so 483 years. If you put that into days, that is 173,880 days until the Messiah comes. So it's very definite. This is true date setting, not the nonsense date setting that you see people do in our day and age. This is from the Lord himself. He says that from that decree of Artaxerxes, there will be 173,880 days, and by that time, the Messiah must be here. And this is pivotal for us to get because it restricts the possibilities of who can be the Messiah to a very definite time period. And therefore, every other false pretender to be a Messiah that has come since has disqualified himself by very fact that he doesn't fulfill this prophecy. So that's why it's very important that we know this. Now, we did this last week, but let me go through it again. If you take the start date, 444 BC, March the 4th, you add those 173,000 days, you get to March the 29th, AD 33. And that, it's very hard to know this unless you've done the maths, but that is the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey proclaiming himself to be the Messiah of Israel. A very unique event that is recorded in the Gospels for us and it's unusual because Jesus arranged that to happen at that time specifically. That is where that prophecy brings us to. So that is the first 69 weeks. It then says in the prophecy that after those 69 weeks, the Messiah will be, it says, cut off, if you look there in the text. The Messiah will be cut off. That is the word that means killed, basically. So not only does this prophecy give us the exact day that he would proclaim himself Messiah, 500 years before this ever happened to a prophet named Daniel, it also tells us that after that, he was to be killed. And of course, after the triumphal entry, one week later, he was crucified by the Roman government at this time. And then it also says that after the Messiah was killed, the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary would be destroyed. So see how specific this prophecy is. 
the exact day of the Messiah, the fact that this person would then be killed, and then the fact that the major city of Jerusalem of Israel would then be destroyed after it. Very specific, there's no vagueness to these prophecies, and of course, 40 years after Messiah was killed, the Roman, the Roman armies sacked Jerusalem. We call it the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The temple and the city were destroyed, and the Jewish people were spread across the world. And I would say this is one of the most amazing prophecies because, as I said before, this proves that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no questioning it. This proves that Jesus is the Messiah and that also proves that God is God. He inspired the Bible and as he says in Isaiah that I've quoted with you many times, the reason why God gives us these sorts of prophecies is so that we may know who he is and that we may be saved. And thus I throw that responsibility back out to all of you. If you do not know the Lord... That is the responsibility you now have. You can never use the excuse that you have never heard. You have seen the prophecies. This is it. This is the reason why these things are here, because he wants you to be saved and know he is who he says he is. That's the first 69 weeks. However, remember, there were 70 weeks decreed in the prophecy for the people of Israel. So we have one more week left. And this is why I want to study this now, because you may have been going with us through Revelation we are about to get into Revelation chapter 6, and Revelation chapter 6 to 18 is that final week. You will notice as we go through the book of Revelation, you'll often see these time periods referenced, three and a half years and three and a half years, relating to the first half and the second half of the seven-year period. And you have to put that together and understand it in light of Daniel's prophecy, or else you'll miss what is going on here. So the 70th week is yet future. So there were 69 that were fulfilled with all these events in the first century. There's been a gap, and that gap is actually, we're still in that gap period now, if you want to call it that. It wasn't a gap with no purpose. During this period, God was taking people for himself out of the Gentiles. God is still working, God is still active. It's not a pause, I don't like that expression, but it's just a gap in the chronology of the 70 weeks. And now we are going to start looking at the 70th week. I want to show you just how much this is talked about in the Bible so hopefully you understand how tragic it is really that, like we said, many people don't like to study the book of Revelation and they miss some of these things that we know. And we want to study this because you will begin to see a lot of what is going on in our world, a lot of things converging that we are going to discuss in the book of Revelation. So let's look at this last verse again, which is the 70th week. It says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even unto a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Again, I'm going to go through this at a bit of a speed. The he there is referring to the person just referenced in the last verse, the prince that is to come. And we spoke last time, this is not talking about Jesus the Messiah. He's already come and died at this point. This is talking about a future world leader, the prince, one who pretends to be the true prince. Notice this replication that you always get here, this counterfeit. We're going to see a, a prince who claims himself to be prince, trying to counterfeit the true prince all throughout the book of Revelation. This is coming a future world leader who is to come in this 70th week. So this is a new character, maybe a new character to us. In the book of Daniel, this character is talked about many times, popularly, in our culture, Western culture, he's referred to as the Antichrist. 
Now, people misunderstand. I don't really like that term, to be frank, because Hollywood has ruined it for us, and you get visions of Damien and 666 and all these movies that we've seen with it. And that really just takes us away from what it means. Anti-Messiah means against Christ or in the place of Christ. This is someone who is trying to counterfeit Jesus Christ, proclaim himself as God. If you remember, there was one person who did that in the heavenly realm that started this whole thing off. Isaiah, when he wanted to exalt himself, he talks about Satan falling because he wanted to exalt himself to the place of God and be worshipped as God. And now we're seeing that manifest on the earth. This is the new character. And this, we must understand the 70th week in light of this. So let's look at this in a little bit more depth before we get back into our Revelation study because it will make sense to you then, hopefully. Now, many of us have never really studied much about this character, but there is a lot written about him in the Bible. So let's look at a few, a few passages. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 and 25, we have a description of him. Now, I'll remind you, this makes much more sense because Daniel 9 is what we're looking at, so Daniel 8 has already set the context. If we'd studied the whole book, you'd have this. But I just want to give you a bit of a flavour of some of the characteristics of this man. It says, in the latter period of their rule, and their rule is referring to the government empires at this time, it says, when the transgressions, transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent, skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but it will not be his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and he will prosper, and he will perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease, and he will even oppose the prince of peace, the prince of princes. So this is the outline of what this man's motive is going to be. Daniel 11.36 adds to this. It says, Then this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. The indignation is another reference to this time period that we're dealing with here. In the New Testament too, He's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians by Paul. He's called the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians by Paul. The Apostle John, who is the author of Revelation, does call him the Antichrist. That's where that word came from. It's actually only used once or twice in the Bible. It's actually the least common name for him. In Revelation, he is simply referred to as the beast. And we'll see that. And it's, it's given in animal form, I believe, to contrast with the character that we studied in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb. You see these two at war throughout this book. Let me just read to you a little bit of that so you get an understanding. This is Revelation 13. It'll be many weeks before we get there in our study. Revelation 13, verses 4 to 6. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act, look at this time period, for 42 months, that's three and a half years, he was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in God. And there's just so much about him that we could go into, but let me just summarize some of the teaching of the Bible for you so we get a proper understanding of this person. During this final week of history, the world is ruled under what we would call a global government system, and this has come about by war, 
one of the ancient empires of the world has really come back to life in many ways and this character has taken charge of that. There are some nations that rebel against him, he defeats them and thus all nations come under his rule. This is the global government. He is an extremely intelligent man, he is a deceptive man, he is a wonderful political leader by all you know, human terms, which is why people will follow him. And he is also going to be worshipped or demand that he will be worshipped as God at some point during his career. It says that he is a wonderful rhetorician, he's a great spokesman, he can speak great things, he can rally people behind him, and he will probably come with the answers to many of the world's problems, or the problems that are put before us as problems in the world today. It is also said in the book of Revelation he will gain control of world religion. He will be in charge of religion and it is also said that he will be in charge of the economy at this point. And trade and economy will require allegiance to him. And we also know that he hates the servants of God, ultimately. This is what we know from this man. And one of the scary things is that it seems that most people of the world want this man to be their ruler. Because like I said, he's not a man wandering around with 666 in a dark cloak. He is probably a political man who appears to all intents and purposes to have the answer and the solution to every problem that is being presented to us in this world. We have seen very easily how quickly people put their hope in politicians and in government. And this is what it is. As soon as God is out of the picture, which will be in these last days in many ways, where do you place your hope? Who's going to save us? people turn to government in these times and this is the problem people are also very happy to give up rights and give up freedoms and pledge allegiance when they're scared fear is a very powerful motivator we've seen that to a minuscule degree just in these last few years but we you can study history and you can see it in times of war and peace people give up everything when they're scared and if someone comes along and says i can save you i can protect you it's not even as a hard thing to imagine that people will pledge allegiance to someone like this. Let's look at the text. It says he, so that's the he, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now a firm covenant, this is most likely a treaty of some sort that will be made with the many. And in the context of this book, the many is referring to the Jewish nation at large. Remember, the prophecy was decreed for Daniel and his people, which is the Jewish people at this time. Daniel and his people. We can't really speculate as to what exactly this is, but we do seem to get the impression it will guarantee their peace and safety. That is something that the nation of Israel has always been searching for since they were reborn, their peace and safety. It will probably include access to that most contentious piece of property, the Temple Mount, and it will probably Im include permission of some sort for them to reinstitute a place of worship up there. Again, all of these things are not hard to imagine. They're already in the discussion if you go through, you know, these things have been talked about for a long time, but yet no one's had the power to be able to do them. This man, it seems, probably will have that power at this time. Now, we may ask ourselves, how would Israel and the world be so deceived that they would commit to signing a treaty because the church has been, <laughs> for 2,000 years, been telling people this is going to happen? Um, this is one of the reasons why we would argue that the church is not here for this point. That's a different study. But how would we do this? Now, again, it's not hard to imagine. Let me take a little historical lesson uh, with you here, as I like to do. Going back to World War II, as it is Remembrance Sunday, and we're looking at these things. Hitler published his book, Mein Kampf, before um, World War II. 11 years, I believe, roughly before, a decade before, pretty much. 
And in that book, he spelled out his, his plans for conquest, really, and he was pretty open about his plans for the Jewish people too. Yet even in light of this, people like Britain and France believed that he was a great man of peace. The belief caused them to passively stand by as Hitler reoccupied the Rhineland, and if you, if you know the Rhineland, was, it's like the buffer state between France and Germany that was demilitarized after World War I, with the Versailles Treaty, he was not, no, Germany was not allowed to put troops into that area and neither was France and it was to be a buffer zone. However, Hitler broke that treaty and he reoccupied the Rhineland very aggressively and because the nations at this time still assumed that he had peaceful intentions, they did not do anything. You may remember the famous meeting between Chamberlain and Hitler, 1938 in Munich, this, he was our British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain at this time. Upon his return to England, he triumphantly waved that piece of paper that had a peace pledge from Hitler on it, and he guaranteed peace with honour, peace for our time. And it, around this time, there was a man called Churchill who stood up in Parliament and, told, and accused Hitler of being a liar, and at this time, the British Parliament shouted him down angrily because he was, you know, he was going against the crowd of what the masses were saying at this time. And I find World War II fascinating because it gives us many parallels and types of the things we are going to be seeing again in this 70th week. If you study the career of Hitler, um, these things are just, they just hit you in the face. You know, he controlled religion, he controlled many different things. We'll talk about those probably more as we go through. However, Eventually he invaded Poland, Hitler did, 1939, and it was only then that the Allies kind of twigged that he had evil plans to conquer the world, but by then it was too late to really avoid what we see in World War II. But he deceived the nations with a message of peace. And this, again, in the Bible, all throughout the history of Israel, right back into the, the, the you know, 5th, 6th century BC, they were warned, do not listen to false prophets who come with a message of peace. Let me read to you just one scripture, Jeremiah 6.14. It says, These people have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. And this is the message you, you'll find again and again and again. The many, the Jewish nation, this is who it's referring to. And we need to understand something of the character of this final seven years, this 70th week, often called the tribulation, it has a very specific focus on the nation of Israel again. And they, so it should do, because the 70th weeks was a prophecy related to Israel. And one of its purposes is to actually bring the nation of Israel finally to the acknowledgement that Jesus is their Messiah. You may know, as we talk about the Jewish people today, the vast majority of Jewish people today do not realise that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is why the destruction of Jerusalem happened, and that's the thing. Their eyes have been hardened. But we know that one day their eyes will be opened and they will see, and part of the 70th week will bring them to that time. Israel as a nation has always been desperate for peace. They have made many treaties with hostile nations before. Some of you will probably remember the Oslo Accords, Yitzhak Rabin and Arafat there, making those famous, that famous treaty. Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister, was assassinated a year after that for doing that even that is the hatred that runs deep in these parts of the world. Another, we had this one just a few years back, or just last year rather, wasn't it? The, the Abraham Accords, another treaty there between different nations. It's not 
out of the realm of imagination of another treaty with a person who has the power to offer these things that Israel's always craved being accepted and you can just see how these things are very close and that could easily happen very, very quickly. Let's go back to the text there. It says that in the middle of this week, he will break this treaty, and this will be the last false treaty in that sense of this that Israel will ever make, but it's with the wrong person. However, although the, peace, the treaty might start with the promise of peace and access and all these things, it doesn't continue like that for very long in the middle of this week, so that's why the week is always split into these two, three and a half year periods in the Bible, because the middle is very important. It will actually turn out that he will break his treaty, this world ruler, and he will set himself up as God, and all of a sudden things will turn, and he will demand that people worship him as God. And this is where we see that it is Satan behind this, because Satan always wants to be worshipped as God. This is his man. And what you are in fact seeing in the book of Revelation, is a completely counterfeit trinity. You see, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Satan has himself, his beast, and as we're going to see someone later called the false prophet, who is his religious ruler. And these are all things that you see happening in this world, and you must understand them in that context. It's absolutely fascinating when you see things going on in the world through this light. But this will be a time of terrible suffering for the Jewish people. And again, think back to World War II. You know, it's no surprise that it was a time of terrible suffering, yes, for the world, but specifically for the Jewish people, because this is often the motivation of Satan. He does not want these 70 weeks to be completed, but they will be. There will be one more final attempt to try and eradicate the Jews. This is the force behind anti-Semitism. In fact, one of the passages that give us details about this final week says it like this, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, there will be none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Jacob is a name for Israel. It is a time of Israel's distress, but eventually Israel will be saved. This is the teaching of the New Testament. I wanted to share with you a few longer passages of scriptures now from different parts of the Bible so that you get an understanding of just this period of history and how common it is speak, spoken about in the Bible. Matthew 24, this is, from the, the word, this is from Jesus. Matthew 24, verses 15 to 20. Do you remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, what's going to be the sign of the end of the age and your coming? They're asking, when is the kingdom going to happen? Which is what they were promised from the Old Testament prophets. And he, he goes on and he gives them an answer. And part of that answer, he says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is verse 15, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So this is what we've just been studying in Daniel 9. Jesus references, references this. When you see that standing in the holy place, and then noticed in the text, it has a little parenthesis, a little bracket that the author puts in, and it says, let the reader understand. So Jesus, like the author, even makes a little sort of scribal emendation here. He says, like, Jesus is saying something, but I'm going to put this little phrase, let the reader understand what reference he's making here. He's referring to Daniel chapter 9. He says, then those who are in Judea, Israel, flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop, don't go back and get your cloak. Whoever is in the field, don't go back and get your cloak, rather. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing in those days. Pray your flight will not be in a winter or a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor will there ever be. 
this 70th week is going to be a unique period of history, which again is a reason, another argument I would make for why God has already taken his church out of the world at this point. There is no place or purpose for that in this period of history. Another text that focuses on Israel's lot in this period, Zechariah 12, verses 2 to 3. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the sieges against Jerusalem will be against Judah, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, if you could list one city in the world today that has nations of the earth scratching their heads over, getting involved in making laws over, trying to do it, it is Jerusalem. And on the one hand, I find it amazing. This was written, remember, hundreds of years before Christ even existed. I mean, how would they know that this tiny little nation would still be around in the end days? Most nations weren't. They were absorbed by larger empires and the changing face of the Middle East has happened multiple, multiple times. But yet we still have Israel here at this time to fulfill this 70th week and the nations will be gathered against it. Now, we see pretty much most of the nations gathered against it today. But remember, at this point, the nations will all be under the one specific government of this one ruler who has come and taken over the earth at that time. So if he says that's who we're against, that is who all the nations are against. And this is why in the book, the end of the book of Revelation, when we see Jesus Christ coming, he is coming at the time of this battle. When those nations are gathered against Jerusalem, they're going to make their final assault to kill the Jews, and Jesus finally says, that's enough, and he comes. And we'll see what happens in a moment with that. However, I find this quite shocking. It's only 75 years since the last attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. And yet, even today, we see how easily this could be fulfilled. Just in the last week, the top Iranian general made a comment that Israel is doomed to disappear. And this is a common statement from nations like Iran. You see them in these generals. But, you know, we, we must take words seriously. People didn't take Hitler's words seriously, even when he wrote them in a book. Words often lead to something more when they are thrown around in a culture. You may have been aware just a few days ago, the Israeli ambassador was giving a talk at the London School of Economics, and she had to be forcibly evacuated by a security team because of violent protesters all of which who were Islamic. That is the situation that we have here. I'd remind you that most nations in the Middle East are Islamic. However, whatever happens with the religious world under this new world ruler, we don't really know. So again, I don't want to speculate on that, but I'm just making the point. It's very easy to see how these things could happen overnight, almost, really. But that is what we have. Let's look at the one week. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So that's a period of seven years. And you'll often see the split, like I said, I'll give you two scriptures to reference that from the book of Revelation. Remember, all of this study is to help us contextualize the book of Revelation as we go forward over the next year or so. Revelation 12, verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, the woman being Israel there, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she will be nourished for 1,260 days. That's another time period, this time given in days, but yep, that's three and a half years again. Revelation 13, 5, Speaking of the beast, there was given to him a mouth speaking words and blasphemies for 42 months, so the same period. It's almost like the author couldn't really think of any other way to express that this is a proper time period he's talking about. He's given it in years and days and months. 
every, every different way he can to make us understand. Let the reader understand. And then it says, in the middle of the week he'll break the covenant, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes definite. So we see the agreement is broken, things get very bad for Israel, Jewish use of the Temple Mount or the Temple is obviously stopped at this point. And something else actually happens here. This is Satan's final attempt, like I said, to receive the worship that he has always craved. And he puts himself in the place of God and he demands that people worship him. And again, this is not hard to imagine. We've seen, remember when we were doing the churches? This is what the Roman emperors used to do too. They would build temples, they would put statues of themselves in it, they would demand the people to bow down for it. We see this in communist China. This is the sort of thing that is done. You bow down to the statue of our leader or else you don't get your welfare checks. This is just so common. You could see this happening very, very simply. But it says this man is not allowed to do this for long. He's had his time here, this final three and a half years of this 70th week, and then it's all over, and he will never bother the world in that way again. A complete destruction is decreed upon this character. Let me finish by just reading to you the text from 2 Thessalonians. This is the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He speaks about this whole event. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's this character we've been talking about. It says, He who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself to be God. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So you see, this is coming. Actually, one of the messages of the church, we saw Harry mention it, there is a point when Jesus is coming back. And until that point, we are to be telling people that you need to receive the truth, you need to be saved. The Lord died for you. He came on the appointed day. He loves you. He wants you to be saved. This future that you're reading about is not for you. That is to deal with Satan and those who stubbornly follow him. And that is the message that we see. Why I've done this study is I really want you to just see how integrated the Bible is. This is 66 book written by 40 different authors over a 1500 year period. Whether you're writing 500 BC or in first century AD, they have these things exactly the same. This is inspired by God. This is his message to the world. And we can see that the Bible was clearly not written by men alone. It was written under the inspiration of God because there's no way that you can get men from such different periods, different cultures, different backgrounds, different uh, religions, really, to all agree on these final things. That just does not happen. As we go through Revelation, you will begin to see these things converge. We will talk about the way the governments converge, we will talk about the economy, we will talk about false religion, and all these things will make much more sense in the context of the 70th week. And remember, it's said that by the end of the 70th week, all things will be fulfilled. Prophecy will be sealed up, and we will be entering the age of the kingdom. And what, end, what is it that starts the kingdom? We just read it, when the Lord comes down, and there's not going to be a battle between these people. It says that they are, just by his appearance, he wins the battle. Because it's not like we have two different gods fighting. Mustn't we have God, and then there is everything else that he created. And simply by his appearance, God wins. 
and that's what will happen when the king returns. He will defeat those people, the beast, and all these different characters that you have. And then we have this new era of history, the age of righteousness, the time of the kingdom. This is a time where righteousness and justice will prevail. Truth and mercy will be the foundation of his throne and righteousness, kindness, justice, love, and the law will go out from Zion and it will prosper and abound throughout the whole earth. That is the, that is the Christian message, really. We need to make sure that we preach all of it. And in unison with the Christians of the first century, I would simply just say Maranatha. That's, what that's how they used to greet each other. It simply means our Lord come. It's a way of expressing that you see the things that are wrong in this world they grieve you, but yet you know redemption is coming. And until that redemption is physically here, we accept it by faith, and we are born again and we are saved, and we live a life in expectation of the coming King. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.